Father, uh, Lord, we desire that the, the, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable before you. You are our rock, and you are our God and our Redeemer. And so, Lord, would you make that so now? Would you move by your spirit, and would you stir our hearts for you and, and what you're doing amongst your church on a, on a global scale, but, but even more what you might be doing here in this community and in the surrounding city? Lord, we are grateful for your word. We thank you for it, and we pray that you would teach us now by your spirit. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we'll see if this is working again here. Maybe not. So let's just go to the next slide. I'm going to have a person in the back do it. So next slide. Okay, so what I want to start out with is kind of some of the story and vision behind this. I want to start by considering kind of where this came from. So, so about a year ago, uh, I was uh, sitting at Elmwood, serving there, pastoring there, as I had said. And one of this, th- th- this thing that started stirring up with me was, was the sense of discontent. Now, I just want to say this. Anytime you feel a sense of discontent with your job, that doesn't mean it's time for a job change, okay? However, uh, we kind of knew this transition was going to be coming at some point, and so we tried to be attentive to that. And so I began to, to think about this, and we prayed about this, and I had some conversations conversations with, with Andrew and some other uh, counselors in my life. And one of the things that my wife, Holly, had observed uh, is that this started happening with more frequency to the point where I was riding kind of this emotional roller coaster. And so what we realized is, okay, the, the Lord is, is leading us out and into the next season here. And so we told our leadership at Elmwood, I said, we probably won't be here by uh, next fall, which is fall 2023. And they were super supportive. They, they were just awesome. And that was a huge blessing. And so that led us to our next step in the journey, which is what I affectionately refer to as church speed dating. Okay? And, and that is, it sounds funny, but that's kind of what the pastoral search process is like. You're courting different church communities as they're getting to know you and you're getting to know them and, and seeing if the Lord might be in this. Now, uh, it's actually a very meaningful process because you're getting to know people who, who are looking for a new church leader. You're getting to know people who, who really, you, you can see their heart for the gospel, but it's also a, a difficult process. Because at the end of the day, uh, you have to say no to some. You have, you have to say, hey, I don't feel like the Lord is leading us in this direction. So we did this with a, a couple churches, um, which were uh, full of amazing people who loved Jesus, and they could have been a good fit, uh, but we didn't feel like they were uh, the right fit for us. And in the midst of this journey, one of the things that Holly and I had had conversations about, and we started navigating this, um, was, was whether uh, my Jewish background had any bearing uh, upon this next season of ministry that we were going to be going into. Now, in the midst of this kind of perfect storm, as I would call it, I ended up in a, a conversation uh, with, with a guy by the name of Mitch Glazer. Now, Mitch Glazer is the president uh, of Chosen People Ministries. Chosen People is uh, the oldest now Jewish outreach ministry uh, in the country, an international uh, ministry, does wonderful, wonderful work. And, and, and I've had the, the privilege of being friends with their branch leader for a while now. So all of us sat down and, and we had coffee. And, and out of that conversation came a really interesting question. And it was this question of whether Holly and I uh, were called to step into uh, Jewish-only ministry, where we called to primarily reach Jewish people. We had an opportunity in front of us that meant we could have possibly uh, went to a, a context that was like 90, 95% Jewish. And the answer that we came to was no. 
And it wasn't because we, uh, we didn't care about reaching Jewish people, obviously. Uh, it was because we also cared about the larger church actually coming to grips and, and grappling with their own cultural Jewish heritage. And so as we process this, at some point, I began to start asking this, this question to myself, which became a very uh, deep passion for me. It was a passion of whether a church could exist that reflected both Jewish depth and Gentile accessibility. Okay, so not a, a messianic congregation, as you might think of in the, the traditional sense, which would trend maybe more culturally Jewish in its worship expression, but one that was uniquely and, hus- and equally hospitable to Jew and Gentile alike. Now, when I say Gentile, I want to be very clear what I mean here. When I mean Gentile, I mean anyone that is not Jewish. And obviously, all of this being under the banner of, of King Jesus, the, the, the one who matters most at the end of the day. Now, we'll pick up kind of the the decision we made here as we went through this process near the end of the sermon, but I at least wanted to give you a little bit of context of how we ended up kind of with this vision and and how this gripped us as we went on this journey. Now, there was one huge step in that that I I really needed to work through, And, and, and the big step there was helping my wife understand what the Lord was doing in me. Right? And, and by God's grace, uh, she, she too has grown in a value for, for what we feel like the Lord is leading us to do. But, but she is uh, not from a Jewish background. She loves Jesus dearly. And the reality is, this is kind of a, a pro tip for you guys out here. If your wife doesn't understand what you think the Lord's calling you into, you should probably think twice before stepping forward without her. Right? And, so, and so what we did is uh, we, we went out to Brookview Park right here in Golden Valley, not too far away. And as we, when we were married, we lived right across the street from it. We, we love it there. We sat down, and I just had an opportunity to talk to her about this. And the reality was, as we got up, we walked around, and, and she was kind of catching on for it. And I had the opportunity to pull out my phone, and I read to her a scripture passage. And it's a scripture passage we're going to look at today. I found myself getting uh, emotional about it. And if you know me, that doesn't happen very often. So I want to take a look at this passage today, because as I said, the scriptures can articulate this vision far better than I can. So go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 2 in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2. You can go ahead to the next slide. Perfect. While you turn there, I want to say that the plan was originally actually to look at Romans uh, 11, but as the week went on, I felt that this would be uh, more appropriate for us to dive into. We are going to turn, uh, you can go back one slide, you, you, we will turn uh, to Romans 11 uh, in a moment here, but, but I want to cover some ground in this text as well. Now, Ephesians is a very interesting letter, okay? It's a letter that Paul wrote uh, to the church or a group of churches uh, in, in the city of Ephesus or the region of Ephesus, which is on the west side of what we know today to be Turkey. And this is a, a prison letter. Paul was writing this when he was uh, in prison in Rome around the year AD 62, so sometime in the early AD 60s. And the way that Ephesians is broken down is this. The first half is gospel truths, gospel doctrine. The second half is gospel response. What are we supposed to do in response to that? Now, what makes this letter the most interesting is actually the city that it was written to. Now, Ephesus is a very unique place. I used to have a mentor who would describe this as a a spiritual Disneyland. Two of the things that that made Ephesus unique was that it had uh, the temple of Artemis in it, and it also, uh, they they, they got the rights, we'll say, to build the temple to the divine Julius, referring to Julius Caesar. 
So this means that there was a real sense of, of paganism and cult worship that was just built into the culture at large in Ephesus. What we see in the book of Acts is that Luke tells us that there was also a Jewish community there. And Josephus, the, the Jewish extra-biblical writer, also affirms this for us. Now, why do I tell you this? I tell you this because I want you to imagine people from these two backgrounds, this Jewish community trying to exist in Ephesus and this pagan community coming out of cult worship, I want you to imagine these two groups coming to faith in Jesus and then trying to do life in the same church together. How complex must have that been? Right? Imagine the values and the, the priorities that needed to be readjusted. The, the lifestyle change that, that would have needed to take place amongst all of them. Like, what would that have looked like for them to coexist? And now you understand the people that Paul is actually writing to in this text. Now, the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, many of us are familiar with because of verses 8 and 9 where Paul tells them, by grace, you've been saved through faith. And it's not your own work. It's a gift of God that, that no one may boast. So Paul affirms for them at the beginning of this chapter what I would call gospel essentials, right? That they were dead in their sin. They were separated from God because of their rebellion in him. And they were caught up in the world's trajectory of death. And that God, in his mercy, gave them himself in the person of Jesus. And it was through casting themselves upon the Messiah Jesus that they would find themselves clothed in his righteousness. And it was through Jesus the Messiah that they would be brought into right relationship with God. But today we're going to pick up in maybe a less familiar section for you. And we're going to pick up in verse 11. What you're going to see in verse 11 is that Paul is talking about two different groups, okay? He uses this kind of us and you and us and them language as we go into it. These two groups that he is talking about are the Jews and the Gentiles, or as I said, those who are not Jewish. When we read the scriptures, this is the primary way that, that, that the Bible categorizes or summarizes all of humanity. Sometimes it says Jews and Gentiles. Sometimes it says uh, Jews and the nation. Sometimes if you're reading Romans, for instance, it'll say to the Jew and also to the Greek. Now it's not doing this because Jews are inherently better or any more important that they get their own category. Okay, it's doing this because the Jewish community was, got by God, in his grace, the, the starting point by which the Lord decided he was going to reach the rest of the world. So what's important is we have our categories squared away. Now, furthermore, I want to say one more thing before we read the text. And it's I want to address this sentiment that sometimes exists by not just people within the church, but, but, but the average person you might meet on the street. Actually, this exists within the Jewish community as well. You can go to the next slide. It, it's this sentiment that to be Jewish is not to be Christian. Okay? To be Jewish is not to be Christian. Some think of these as two different uh, religious affiliations, something like you might see on the slide right now. But understand that this is not how the Bible talks about these two groups. We have to get this. And to think in this way fails to recognize, number one, that Jesus was thoroughly Jewish. Number two, that all of his initial disciples were thoroughly Jewish. Number three, that all of the New Testament authors, with maybe the exception of Luke, were Jewish. And finally, up until Acts 10, it's clear that Jesus' disciples didn't actually grasp the fact that to follow Jesus could be anything other than Jewish, 
okay? So instead of thinking in the way that you see on the screen, I think a better way might be to think more like this. Take a look at the slide. You can go to the next one. So instead of thinking of Jews and Christians as different religions, let's think as the Bible thinks in terms of Jew and Gentile, as people from two different ethnic backgrounds, both of whom can come to trust Jesus, okay? Now, there are many in the Jewish community who reject Jesus as the Messiah and practice the, the religion of Judaism, right? You might call this the religion of the rabbis, much of which developed after the temple destruction in AD 70. But on the other hand, there are many Gentiles that reject Jesus as the Messiah and practice all kinds of religions as well. So I want us to grapple with this fact that one can come to Christ from either a Jewish or a non-Jewish background. And as Paul writes, he's navigating both of these Christian groups trying to live together in community. Does that make sense? I want to make sure we're very clear on that because these categories, if you read most of the New Testament through this lens, you'll realize what God is doing in trying to bring these two groups together. So let's read now the text. Look with me at Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 22. Take a look at this with me. Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh in the hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, and strangers to, uh, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been bought, brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So let's walk through this text a little bit and see what it shows us. The first thing that Paul says when he's addressing them, he wants them to remember something, and he wants them to remember where they were before Jesus. Go ahead to the next slide. So Paul invites these Gentiles, he's talking to the Gentiles in this context, in the churches to remember where they came from. He says, guys, you were cut off from God and from his people. He's very upfront about it. He says, you were separated from Christ and by extension had no relationship with the Lord. Not only were you separated from God, but you were disconnected from his family, and therefore you were outsiders to the promises that God had made to his family. You see, what we need to understand is that prior to Jesus coming, to trust in the God of Israel ordinarily expressed itself as one would have come into the nation of Israel. Therefore, to be outside of this group and to be outside of this, this ethnic dynamic would have meant that you were seen as being outside of God's grace. And so prior to Christ, Paul says you were in a dreadful scenario 
because you guys were on the outside. You were quite literally outside of the camp. But I want us to contrast that with what he says next, starting in verse 13. He, says, he tells them where they now stand because of Jesus. Go ahead to the next slide. You see, Paul now observes this difference between where they were in their previous situation and their present one. And what we see is that Jesus' is coming called for something that the Old Testament had been looking forward to all along. It was calling for a time when not only Israel would flock back to God, but when all of the nations would as well. You see, what Paul says is that Jesus addressed the law's natural impact of separating Jews from Gentiles. Now, I want to be very clear here when I clarify this, because Paul says here that Jesus abolished the law of ordinances. But when we read Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, he says, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And I want us to be very clear that these two are not contradicting each other. In fact, the word for abolish that Matthew uses in, in, in Matthew 5 and the word that Paul uses here for abolish are two different Greek words that overlap somewhat in meaning, uh, but they, they can mean different things. So they're not contradicting. What Paul is recognizing here is how Jesus' death impacted the law's distinction between Jew and Gentile. You see, the law of Moses, in God's grace, it formed this protective boundary that guarded Israel from compromising with the nations around them. But you see, in Jesus, he comes and he fulfills the law on behalf of his followers, and he brings about a new covenant. The word that Paul uses for abolish here can also be translated as, as rendered inoperative, okay? And so Jesus brings about a new covenant and renders the old one inoperative. And this new covenant that the Lord brought about did not create the same distinction in the same way the old covenant did between Jews and those from the other nations. Now, this is going to get kind of interesting here when we consider that this wall of hostility, look at verse 14 with me. For he himself is our peace, who, who in his flesh brought down the dividing wall of hostility, this wall of hostility actually existed in Paul's day quite literally. Go ahead to the next slide. Does anybody uh, know what this is right here? Are there any like super nerds in the room? I'd be super impressed if somebody knew this. So this is a placard that existed on the wall of hostility in the temple. In the temple complex, in Jesus and in Paul's day, there were different courts. And depending on what your ethnic background was or your gender, you, you had permission to go into different courts, okay? So there was the court of the Gentiles, which was for, as it says, Gentiles. And then there was the court of the women, okay? And in the court of the women, that was where only Jewish people could begin to enter into. And between the court of the Gentiles and between the court of the women, there was a four and a half foot wall, that existed, and there were 13 of these placards on that wall. And I'm going to just summarize what the placard says. Here's what it says. Gentiles keep out. And if you cross this, then you're responsible for your own death. That's what it says, okay? You want to talk about a wall of hostility, right? And this is just one evidence of the, the hostility that existed between these two groups in Jesus and in Paul's day. But here's where this gets even more interesting, because let's remember that Paul is in prison in Rome 
writing to the church in Ephesus. Do you know how Paul originally was arrested that led to him being in prison in Rome? He was falsely accused of bringing an Ephesian Gentile across that wall of hostility. And now he's using that situation to make a point. He's using it to say, guys, in Christ, that physical representation of the tension that you have has been done away with because you no longer need to guard that temple anymore because the hot spot of God's presence is no longer there. It is now in you. That is the point that Paul's making when he's talking about these two groups. Now, before we look at what God is presently doing among this group and and even among us today, I want to take a moment to ask a question because Paul is writing here to a group of Gentile believers primarily and their relationship to the Jews. But let's think about how do the Jews fit into this, okay? If the Jewish people have rejected God, has he rejected them? If Paul's talking about Gentiles coming into the family of God, is he doing this so that Jewish people might be replaced or expelled from the group? Has he done away with Israel? And friends, that could not be further from the truth when we look at the letter to the Romans. Turn with me very briefly to Romans 11. To Romans 11 here. We're just going to cherry pick some verses. You can check my context Later, I promise you, I, I, I've done the work to make sure uh, what I'm saying is accurate here. Start in, in, in verse 11, in verse 1. Paul asks this very question. If, if, if the Lord is bringing Gentiles into the family of God, has he rejected the Jews? Let's read it. I ask then, has God rejected his people? What does Paul say? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So if we understand this right, Paul says that, of course, God hasn't rejected the Jewish people. And the way that he backs it up is he says, I'm Jewish, and I trust in the Messiah, and I'm part of the family of God. And then he goes into this analogy after this, talking about Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, and how Elijah for a season thought that he was all alone. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm actually preserving a bunch of you guys for myself. And in the same way, Paul's point is that the Lord even now is preserving a group of faithful Jews who will trust in Jesus. Look at verse 11 with me, 11 and 12 of Romans here. He says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? So was God's purpose for them to actually kick them out for good? By no means. Rather, it's through their trespass that salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Go with me to verse 25. Paul elaborates on this. 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. How interesting. How interesting. Then he says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. So what we see is that God's plan to save the world through Jesus and to create a a multi-ethnic family all under the Messiah as the head actually accounted for and planned for the rejection of the initial 
people who the, the Messiah would come through, through the Jewish people. And it actually says that their rejection was the vehicle that propelled the gospel to come to most of the people in this room. And as if it can't get any crazier, here's what he says, that it's the gospel then going to the nations that is meant to be the means by which God provokes the Jewish people back towards their own Messiah. How nuts is that? Like, how crazy? So the Gentiles are dependent upon Israel for getting the gospel in the first place. And Israel is dependent upon the Gentiles to see the mercy of God and be provoked back to the Lord. So even in the Lord's plan of salvation, we are seeing that he is knitting together Jew and Gentile. Now, it's important that we understand that when he says all Israel will be saved, he doesn't say every Israelite will be saved in the same way that not every Gentile will be saved as the scriptures tell us here, okay? To be Jewish does not give you any salvation privilege any more than it does someone who's not Jewish. But what we have to see in the text is that in God's plans, there's gonna come a time when large amounts of Jewish people are coming back to faith in Jesus. So I just wanna say this, that while you know, St. Louis Park has a large Jewish community, okay? And while it might look like not many Jewish people are coming to faith in Christ, let me say that the data supports the contrary, okay? Chosen People uh, partnered with uh, LifeWay Research not too long ago to do a study uh, polling uh, kind of Jewish people on, on their, their doctrinal positions. And here's what they found. Now, we have to be careful when we extrapolate this data nationwide. But if you extrapolate the data from what they found, the, the, the data would suggest that there might be as many, if not more, than 800,000 Jewish believers nationwide. And many of them would, by nature, go to churches just like we have here at Park. So let me just encourage you in that, that there are Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus just like there are Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus. But now that we've established that, let's finish Ephesians 2. Go ahead and turn back to Ephesians 2. I am going to read these last final verses again for us for Paul's conclusion. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here's what we see, what God is doing among his people now by the Spirit. So Paul says we need to be very clear on something in light of what he has said, that Gentile Christians, those that do not come from a Jewish background, Paul makes it very clear that they, that you, are not just half-breed Christians. You are not just half-brothers, but you are full citizens in the kingdom of heaven. That Gentile Christians are co-heirs to the promises of God, and they are absolute members of God's family. And it's as these Gentile believers and as these Jewish believers come together, as they build upon the, the testimony of the, the apostles and the prophets, and as they make Jesus the main thing through and through at every second of their relationship, what Paul says is what we will see is that God is building a new temple that doesn't exist in Jerusalem, but it exists in us. 
and where these two groups used to stand, butting heads together, separated by hostility, now there will stand one new man standing there with Christ as the head. Guys, this is what I want us to take away this morning. This is the vision that I want to capture us. If you don't hear anything else, please hear these next few things that I'm about to tell you. You can go to the next slide. The fact of the matter is, first, that that God loves the Jewish people, and he is not done with them yet. The scriptures are, are abundantly clear that there is a value to being Jewish. Paul really plays into this in Romans, and that there is a depth of understanding when we read God's word in light of all of that history and all of that context. Guys, the the categories that the Bible assumes are thoroughly Jewish, and they're grounded in Israel's worship expressions, but they need Jesus, just like any one of us. And there are 60,000 plus Jews that exist in the Twin Cities, many of which do not know the Lord. Like, what a mission field that is. And many of you live right in a community where there is the majority of them living there. But on equal footing with that, I want to emphasize that God loves the nations. And in Christ, he has made you all full covenant members of his family. So hear this. If you are a Gentile, you do not need to become Jewish in order to experience the fullness that God has for you. Do I think that there is a level of depth of understanding that will come from understanding your Jewish cultural heritage? I do. I I thoroughly believe that. And in the coming months, when I'm preaching, it's going to come out of me because I don't actually know how to do anything else, okay? But but the reality is, is is I have no interest in you becoming uh, Jewish or, or Judaizing you. I want you to experience the abundant life that God has for you in Christ. What we find is that God does not ask us to forego our ethnic heritage when we come to the Lord. He honors that ethnic heritage, and he, in some ways, elevates it so that in the new creation, we see that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will worship him together, and I want us to do the same together. I want you to hear from me on a personal note that that as a Jewish believer, I want to hear what a blessing it is. I want you to hear what a blessing it is to have all of you. I I have done... uh, almost all of my professional ministry career in Gentile contexts. And to see the the variety of worship expressions that come out of the nations, to to see the unique experiences of God's grace that come about in in your lives like like they have in mine, that that is a gift to me. And it's amazing for me to know that, that because of Jesus, we are not just associated together, but the scriptures tell us that we are now related together. We are, in some ways, blood brothers, if we're going to put it in that sense. But finally, and most importantly, and this is where the vision for this church plant lands, and what I want to invite you to begin praying about, is the fact that God is knitting together a multi-ethnic family of both Jews and Gentiles as a witness to his wisdom. In Romans 11, Paul uses, if you were to continue reading, this illustration of we are like an olive tree where there are natural branches who are the Jewish community and the, the, the unnatural branches which have been grafted in, which are the Gentile community, but all equally connected to the same tree and the same root by faith in Christ. We are all part of, quite literally, the same family tree. In Ephesians 3, Paul actually says that this is a cosmic witness, that when we come together and worship Jesus, 
that it testifies to what he says to the powers and to the authorities. Okay, when Paul uses that language in Ephesians, he's not referring to human beings. He's referring to angelic beings. Paul is saying that when we come together and worship the Messiah well, we are not just being a witness to those around us in our neighborhoods, but we are being a cosmic witness to all of creation that God was so good that he was able to make us one in himself. And so in early August, this past August, Holly and I decided that we were going to chase this vision, that we were going to pursue this for all that it is right here, that we wanted to plant a church that would seek to embody this olive tree, that would seek to embody what it would look like for the church to stand together as one new man with Jesus in charge. We're going to be doing this in partnership with Chosen People Ministries, which is technically where I'm on staff. Um, and we're going to be doing this denominating as an evangelical free church because we really value the network and the relationships there. So we are, we are literally going to be embodying this Jewish believing organization and for the free church, many Gentile uh, believers coming together to try and make this plant happen. Now, I want to say that I know that not every church is called to do this, right? And, and that's good and that's right and that is okay. Some of this is, is context dependent, but I firmly believe that we are. And I, I believe that the Lord is not just calling us, but is calling Park to consider what it might look like in partnering in making that happen. Because there is a, a distinct richness when Jews and Gentiles come together around Jesus. And there is a, a, a unique perspective that comes about when we read the scriptures together. And there is a unique witness when such different people can come together under a common savior. So I, I, I want to emphasize that I really believe that, that if we do this well, if the Lord blesses this, if he moves about it, that, then everybody will benefit from it, no matter what background you are from. So this is what we're aiming for in the power of God's spirit. And, and I would love for you to pray about how you might be involved in that. Um, obviously, it takes resources to do some of this, so we would love financial partnership. We'd love to have people that are recurring, giving to this mission that we're doing. But we would also love to have people that are willing to come and join us on this adventure. I asked Andrew, he gave me permission to invite you all to be a part of this. I'm not just poaching people. Uh, but, he, but, but I would love to have you pray about whether you might be a part of this journey with us. Uh, here's my email. Go ahead and put that slide up. Um, you, you can feel free to pull out your phones or write this down. If you, are, if you have questions, if you are interested in this, if you are be interested in hearing more about it, please do not hesitate to email me. I would love to take you to lunch or coffee or, or meet up with you and answer any questions you have. I also might be initiating conversations with some of you uh, over the next few months, so uh, just a heads up. But as we uh, transition to worship and, and we take communion together, you can go off of this slide. I just want to remind us of, of this at the end of the day as we come together, that God is so good to us, that he is faithful, and, and he loves us dearly, even in the depths of our brokenness. And the reality is, is that the issue at the end of the day is that we are not faithful, that we are not good in and of ourselves. So often we're compromised. So often we are, are indifferent to the things of God. And, and what we find and, and what we see God doing in the New Testament trying to fix is that our sin does not just stay within us, but it overflows into the relationships around us until we have a bunch of our own walls of hostility between those in our community. Paul says that because of who we are on the deepest level and what we've done, we're separated from God. 
and we are not worthy of his presence. But as we address today, I want to affirm again for us that God is rich in mercy. It is overflowing that in our deathly state, God took on flesh in the person of Jesus, and, and he, he conquered death. He lived for us. He died for us, and he overcame it on our behalf. And, and so I just want to acknowledge what Paul emphasizes in our text today, that nobody is too far from God to be redeemed, that in his wisdom and in his power, he has drawn people from, from every corner of the world to himself into his kingdom, and he is more than capable of dealing with all of our complexities, all of our fears, all of our, our failures, and he meets them richly, abundantly, and more than we could ever deserve in Jesus. And it's through faith in Jesus that we find forgiveness and restoration with the, the God who, who we were made to love, who we were made to know. So today as we come to Christ's table with the, the, the juice and the bread, you can come up when, whenever you're ready for that. But Jesus tells us to do this uh, in remembrance of him. So together, let, let, let's remember the, the price that he paid uh, on our behalf and his glorious conquering of death so that one day we all might come together, those from every tongue, tribe, and nation, in a new creation where death is no more, where, where sin is no more, where these walls of hostility are no more, and there is only love and God dwells with us there. And remembering that Jesus did this, all that we might be reconciled to God, yes, but also reconciled to one another in one new man. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the time to come together and, and read your scriptures and hear about what you are up to in the world, where we were before you, you came to us, where, where, where we stand now in light of Jesus and what you're doing in, in helping us to, to, to stand righteous and sanctifying us by your spirit, all because Jesus shed his blood for us. We thank you that you are reconciling us also to one another in, in relationship, that you are bringing Jews and Gentiles alike together into one new temple for your glory and for your name. And Lord, we pray that that would become a reality in our community. We pray that, that you would move by your spirit here at Park and that you would draw the right people, that you would stir hearts for this vision and that you would bring about your plans and purposes, that you would do your will here on earth as it is in heaven, as we see in your scriptures. Lord, so continue to move about us as we worship. Remind us of the good news of the gospel. Draw us to yourself today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.